what we're going to talk about today, uh, what we're going to hear about is Psalm 23. How many of you know the psalm by heart? Only Kathy? <laughs> oh, no. All right. So it's a privilege to stand before you today um, to speak God's word. But um, let's open with a word of prayer, okay? Let's pray. May the words of my mouth echo your word, O Lord, so that your son be glorified, your people edified, and that we may be sanctified as you conform us to the image of your son. In his name only and for his name's sake, amen. So we're looking at Psalm 23 today. I know it's a favorite of many. So if we, how many psalms do we, do we, are we familiar with? There are 150 psalms. Not all of them are written by David, right? So there are some who are written by David. He wrote 73 of the psalms to be exact. And uh, some others are written by the sons of Korah, who are part of the Levites. And the others include Solomon and even Moses. So Moses wrote Psalm 90, okay? So Psalm 23 in particular is called the Psalm of David. Why is that? Who does this point to? David being a shadow of Christ points to Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. You can see it here on the screen, okay? So the main point today is pretty straightforward. Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd. But um, we're going to do it slightly different today. I'm going to go through the Hebrew and the English with you. Are you guys, are you guys ready? All right. Okay. So I'll, I'll try to make it not difficult. All right. It's good. So it's easier to, for people in the 21st century like us to understand the context of what David is talking about. But before that, let's look at the New Testament in John chapter 10. It is the Messianic fulfillment of Psalm 23. But uh, let's look at 1 Peter verses 5. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. What does Peter say in verse 5? It says in verse 1, So I exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight and not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Verse 4, this is where the key is. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter here gives us an idea of the responsibilities of shepherds and who the chief shepherd is. So let's look at the word shepherd. So shepherd is frequently used and as a meaningful metaphor in scripture. So the Hebrew word for pastor and shepherd are the same. If you read from the right to the left, you see it's uh, roi. That's my shepherd in Hebrew. Okay? So the Greek word for pastor and for shepherd is also the same. It's poiment. Verse 4 in Peter 1, 1 Peter 5 says, when the chief shepherd appears. So pastors all over the world are essentially assistant pastors, Right? And the chief shepherd, because Christ is the chief shepherd. So let's look at quickly at John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15. And this is the messianic fulfillment of Psalm 23. It says what in verse 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I have my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So in Psalm 23, when David starts, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's essentially pointing to Christ as his shepherd. And Jesus is essentially our personal pastor. Remember, King David is a shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament, right? So Peter tells us how much like Jesus a pastor is determines how good a pastor he is. So the Old Testament shadow of that is in David. So if you read throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles, you see all the kings being compared to David. If it was a good king, it would go something like this. He walked before the Lord with his whole heart, like his father David had done. And if it was a bad king who led the nation into idolatry, what it would say, he did not seek the Lord with all his heart just as his father David had done. So every king in the Old Testament was compared to David. In Ezekiel 34, the kings of Israel were called shepherds, and they were indicted for doing what they were not supposed to, right, leading Israel to idolatry. So King David is the Old Testament standard for measuring how good a king is because he is a shadow of Christ. So let's look at Psalm 23 now in the Hebrew and the English. Here on the screen, we'll look at verse 1. You can see from, so you read Hebrew from the right to the left, okay? So I'll read it for us. Mizmor le David Adonai Roi lo Haser. It says, a Psalm of David, Yahweh is my pastor. For all true believers in Christ, God himself is your pastor. This is a Christological statement. It points to Christ himself in John 10. It points to the deity of Christ. If he is the good shepherd, he must be God. If he calls us his sheep, he must be God. The phrase, I shall not want, lo haser. So when John Wycliffe translated the Bible to English, want in the English at the time had a slightly different meaning than we understand it today. So better understanding is, I shall not lack. Okay, we shall not lack the things God, our pastor, knows we need. However, he will meet our needs on his terms, his way, his timing, and for his reasons and for his glory. It doesn't mean that God cannot give us our desires or wants. He can and often does, but there is no guarantee that we will get our want, not like how we see it on TV. You name it and you claim it. Okay, we are guaranteed we will get our needs, and that is defined by God himself. So he who gave us his son, Jesus Christ, knows what we need. Verse 2 says, Banaot deshar ya besheni elmi mahunot yana heleni. The English says, he makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still water. In our minds, I'm sure many of us have the picture of Jesus Christ with the uh, long locks. Like, it looks like someone just came out from a shampoo, like a commercial. All right, you've seen the picture of him holding a staff, carrying a cute lamb, surrounded by sheep. Yes? So something like this. All right? So in the background, you see pictures of the luscious uh, hills uh, of grass and so on. I think there's some truth in this picture there's of Jesus carrying a sheep, but that's about it. So what is the reality of it? 
So biblical archaeologists will today study Bedouin culture. Okay, so these are pe a people group who migrate in the desert because it's changed so little since biblical times. So a Bedouin shepherd follows a very similar biblical patterns of shepherding. So it's very similar to Moses and David during that time. So they go through desert and barren land, rocky hills, from oasis to oasis, looking for what? The annual rain cycle. So they follow the rain cycle to bring the sheep there so they can water and feed the sheep. Okay? It's not always lush hills. All right? So this is what it really looks like versus what you saw earlier. Okay? What you saw earlier probably is a sheep farmer from New Zealand. Okay? Or from the set of Lord of the Rings. All right? So just imagine this. The sheep being covered in thick wool in temperatures of 100 degrees and over, they will be desperate for water. So oasis in, Israel's, in Israel and in the Middle East are mainly made of wadis. What are wadis? They are dried up creek beds, right, that will become a flash flood when the rain comes, right, during the rainy season. So the closest thing today that will represent that is the Death Valley in the Mojave Desert in California, okay? So a sheep will be easily swept away in the flash flood. So it is very helpful to understand the terrain of what David is talking about. The most famous oasis in Israel is called uh, Ein Gedi. Some of you have been there. Uh, this is where David hid from Saul in 1 Samuel 24. So this is a very hostile desert environment, and the sheep will be very desperate for water. So here are some pictures of Ein Gedi, if you can see that. Slide 9, slide 10. And sheep are very nervous creatures. And unfortunately, not very clever. Probably why Jesus uses them to describe us. Okay? The only thing th thirsty sheep sees is water. If they went into the Dead Sea to drink, they will die. If they see the rushing waters during the flesh flood and they rush into it, they will drown and die. So the shepherd has to step in to keep them safe. So what is this idea of water in, uh, in the Bible? Isaiah 44 verse 3 tells us, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So true water is a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And according to Isaiah 44, 3, Jesus also told the woman at the well in John 4, I will give you my living water. John 7, 38, 39 says, Whoever is thirsty, come to me, and I will give him living water. This is Jesus also speaking figuratively of the Holy Spirit. So desperate sheep will go to any water source, but a good shepherd will protect his sheep and lead them to water that is not poisonous like the Dead Sea and not treacherous like the flesh floods. So the shepherd goes on to lead the sheep up this narrow path in Ain Gedi. You see that on the picture? Up this rocky path. And at the top, there's an oasis or small ponds of still water. This is probably what David was thinking about when he wrote this psalm. Okay? So when the good shepherd leads the sheep, the water is always still. Right? The good shepherd leads his sheep to still water. If you remember, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. 
not being out of control. So that's what is seen on TV. Know that this is not from God. Our God is not one of confusion. Okay, this doesn't mean that there is no joy or excitement. It just means that it is real and not a cheap counterfeit. Okay, where the Lord leads us, He leads us to a place of resting, still waters where He makes us lie down in pastures. He gives us peace. So if Jesus was our true shepherd leading, the water will always be still. Okay, let's look at verse 3 in Psalm 23. Nafshi Yesovei Yahani Bermage Sedek Laman Shemo. It means, he says here, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And what is the end of it? It says, for his name's sake. So when, what God does for his sheep, he does it as if he was doing it for himself. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. Scripture illustrates this two ways. Number one, parents doing good for their children. And number two, husbands loving their wives as Christ left the church in Ephesians chapter 5. So the question here is, what does Christ do for his name's sake? For his name's sake, he leads us to paths of righteousness. So the word path here in Hebrew, uh, they use magal. And that is an idea of something which is round and circular. Okay, so when you read, you think about it, you can say he leads us into circular paths of righteousness. All right? And Christ does this to restore our soul. Nafshi yesova. And the root word of that is what? Shuv. What is shuv? To turn and to return. All right? And it means he causes my soul to repent. So God causes our soul to repent. So how does God restore us spiritually and emotionally? By causing us to repent, to turn back to Him. So repentance is the beginning of all healing. Where does this restoration happen? It happens here, in the circle of righteousness, among believers. Okay, there is restoration in the fellowship of believers. Not just one or two, but the whole body of believers. Circles of righteousness. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the second return of Christ coming. So, important to note here, do not make it a habit to be outside the circle of righteousness. Okay? means outside Christian fellowship. Sojourning in the wilderness, i.e. being in the world all the time, is living very dangerously. Okay? So verse 4. Gemki elek barge salmevat lo irara ki ata imadi septaka teka hema yana hamuni. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So if you look at the word in bold, salmevet, is the shadow of death. This is something we generally understand to be death itself. And because Jesus rose from the dead, so we will also rise with him and not fear death. That is one way of looking at it. But in the context of Psalm 23, 
this Salmevet, Sheroth, death, it's actually the dangerous, steep, rocky paths that the sheep take, right, that goes up to the oasis. So in the Ein Gedi picture earlier, it points to the narrow and rocky paths up the steep slopes, and the predators know where the sheep are headed towards. The sheep has to go toward that narrow path, which is very dangerous, falling rocks, slippery, and so on. And remember, a shadow cannot hurt you because it has no substance. What it tells you is that there is something nearby that can. It's talking about the perils of sojourning in this life and in this world. As long as we stay by Jesus, our shepherd, we are safe. Remember John 15, verses 4 to 11, Jesus says what? He says, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As long as we stay by Jesus, our shepherd, don't fear what is out there. 1 John 4, 4 says, he that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in the next phrase, you see, David going and saying, your rod and your staff. So there's no consensus in scholarship on whether the rod and the staff are the same instrument or two separate different instruments. But what is for sure, what is quite clear here, what the, the rod is put first. Okay? So if you notice, the correction of the Lord comes before the staff. We generally don't like correction, right? I don't like correction. We like to sing the song, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? We like to lean on him because he's nice, comfortable. He looks like that uh, New Zealand shepherd. They'll give you a nice little hug, okay? But here in Psalm 23, David puts the rod first. Why? We as sheep tend to wander. It is a fact. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Notice that the rod also comforts. We can take a sense of comfort, assurance, security from the correction of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. There are trials where God allows us to go through for various reasons, but there, is, there are also those that we bring upon ourselves because of our sin. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So here, David moves to a, towards a Passover theme. Remember the Passover? So the word here is sorai. The one you see in both is from the root word of Sarah. So the English translated as enemy, but a slightly inaccurate enemy in Hebrew is Oyev. Sorai in this context is literally the one who causes us distress. Who causes us distress? So in the next phrase, you prepare a table. So the preposition here, neged, you can look at it as against. So David is saying, you prepare a table against the one that causes us distress. 
So as God, First uh, Peter one, First uh, Peter four twelve, says, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you." Okay, as God intervenes in the circumstances of our life, lives on our behalf, the devil is also trying to manipulate these circumstances against us, God's people. So please understand what is going on here. The Passover meal is a memorial of what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt, right? But it was also a testimony of what he was going to do when Jesus the Messiah came. 1 Corinthians tells us our Passover is the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial of what Christ has done. Every time we partake, we proclaim our Lord's death until he returns. So this is like a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ comes back. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look back to what Christ has done and we look forward to what he will do. So God himself prepares a table for us. So when Satan sees the marriage supper of the Lamb being prepared, what does he do? He knows his time is short. As in Revelation 12, 12, the idea here is the Passover table is set against the one who caused us distress, Satan himself. Okay? Next phrase, kosi ravaya, my cup overflows. So in a Seder, in a Passover ceremony, there are four cups in a Seder. I'm not going to talk about all of those. I'll just mention two of them. There is one cup which is called the cup of blessing. Okay, you fill it up before you partake in the Seder. And the second one, uh, the cup that's being filled up is called, it reminds them of the cup of wrath, God's wrath. So every time they top it up, they'll repeat the plagues of Egypt. So you have blood, frogs, locusts, hail, darkness, and so on. So in a sense, every time this is replayed, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, Satan is reminded of the cup of God's wrath being stored up for him and his angels. Okay? Judgment that awaits him. And at the same time, the blessings that we, his people, continue to have and which he always fills up. So here you have a good understanding of the background. It gives us a clearer picture of what David is talking about when he writes Psalm 23. Are you still with me? Okay, we're on the last verse. Verse 6. Aktov v'hased yirda puni kelyame haya v'shafti babet adunai la'orok yamim. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The phrase, Aktov has said, here is an exclamation. So David is saying, is making an exclamation. He's saying, wow, how amazing it is, how good it is. It's a joyful exclamation. And goodness and Hasid is basically God's grace being displayed to us. And if you look at this phrase, Yurapuni, has been translated as follow. So the word has a little bit of a passive tone to it. In the Hebrew, the root word comes from radaf, which means what? To pursue. So instead of follow, it's to pursue. God chases after you. So like the hunter pursuing his target, God chases us in order to punish us? No. In order to 
cast His goodness and grace upon us. Okay, I want you to pause and think about this. Which other religion has his God pursuing the people so that he can bless them? It's always the opposite. He requires something from them before the God gives them something, yes? So how many times have we seen this replayed over and over again in our lives? God calling us back to him, pursuing us. We run away, he pursues us. Please get rid of the idea that God is out to get you. He's not out to get you. He's out to redeem you, to call you back to himself, to chase you back to him. And the last phrase here, kal yameh hayah, is is part of a Hebrew idiom, meaning all the days of our lives in this world. Together with the last phrase, la'arok yamim, which means the length of days, together means not only in this world, but in eternity. So it reads, I will dwell in the house of the Lord unendingly from this life to the next when we die in the flesh. So let me end with this before we partake of the Lord's Supper. David in the 23rd Psalm paints a picture for us of God as our shepherd, leading and guiding us to the water of life given by his son, Jesus Christ. He not only leads and guides us, but he puts in front of us his Passover as a reminder of what he has done and also a reminder of his promise of what awaits us, his people. The final marriage supper of the Lamb, as you see in Revelations, where death is finally defeated. There are no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin. So for us as believers, the best is yet to come. It is not our best life now. All right? So no matter how hard our lives are, please look forward to what is to come. Dwelling with Christ will be so good that even the good things of this world won't even matter. And if your life is really good right now, think about this. As preacher Leonard Ravenhill famously asked, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Or are the things I am living for worth Christ dying for? So let me paraphrase Psalm 23 to end. We can use this as a prayer. If you all can rise with me. Please rise. So those online, you can uh, also bow your heads. And let's lift up our hands. I'll read this to us as we pray. O Lord, my God, with you as my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. You lead me through the desert to pasture and into the springs of everlasting water. You cause me to repent and lead me back to the fellowship of righteousness for your name's sake. Even through the trials and failures of life, I will not fear death or shame. For my Lord and my God, your correction and renewal restore my soul. Your Passover reminds me of the atoning work of Jesus Christ who has saved me from death and the evil one. You anoint me and I proclaim Jesus' death and long for his return as you continually fill my cup with your blessings. Oh, how good are you, O oh Lord. Your steadfast love and grace pursue me, and it extends from this life to the next as I dwell in your presence forever and ever. Amen.